Hi, everybody, and welcome to season two of 40. Uh, Try it again. Try it again. Welcome to season two of 40 ish. Uh, I have some ideas. Uh, I ran out of time, but I will try and enact the ideas I to make that even time. Hey, listen, we're rewatching Breaking Bad. Yeah. Oh, see, there we go. Now, it's now it comes out. Priorities. Yeah. Priorities. It. it I'm, I'm catching stuff because you know, being old and falling asleep during episodes the first time we watched it, I'm catching some cool stuff. Like well, I have no Moranis idea. Isn't in there. What's that? Rick Moranis isn't in there. He's not playing no. a Canadian. <laughs> Uh, for those who are not sure, re-listen to a few episodes back and look for the Strange Brew section. Anyway, uh, guys, I'm uh, super thrilled to talk with you guys again tonight. Once again, we are joined by Mr. John Moody. Hello. Uh, Mr. Lance Abair. Greetings from North Carolina. And we are uh, privileged on today's episode to welcome in a uh, friend of mine, friend of our families. Uh, Mr. Tom Tischler. Tom, welcome to 40-ish. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. So uh, before we get into our litany of questions that we have and the note-taking that I'll be doing furiously from my end, uh, can you give us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, so um, I live here in Portage, Michigan, um, born and raised over in Dearborn, over by Detroit. Um came out to go to college at Western and kind of stayed, loved the area and everything. Um, met a girl, had two kids and, uh, that's kind of that old chestnut. (laughs) Exactly. Um, We've heard this story before. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, yep. Two kids, uh, 10 and 14. Um, and, uh, yep. Kind of living the work and life and everything. Um, I work for uh, Habitat for Humanity here in Kalamazoo, um, the local affiliate. I'm the, um, let's see, my official title is Director of Construction Operations, but I'm I'm just the construction manager. Yeah, but Director of Construction Operations sounds awesome. It does. It sounds really good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it makes you wield power that you actually probably have, but don't throw around in that mean sort of way right yeah yeah they changed my job <laughs> fair title. enough what was it last year or two years ago it was like oh, okay that sounds a little better <laughs> neat do you have so, your own office overlooked just had, didn't have a good ring right it didn't have a good ring that's right uh tom what did you study in, in college that did it was it something that was automatically going to feed into something like habitat or <laughs> um no actually I, I had kind of a non-traditional path um i originally went to school my first year i did at michigan state and i studied astrophysics i was really really a science nerd and just everything about like quantum mechanics and all that kind of stuff um bumped up against calculus and it kind of kicked my butt and um decided to move on and uh take up wood technology i'd always been a you know i i loved wood shop in high school um always an avid woodworker and everything so Moved to Western. They had a great wood tech program, so majored there and thought for a while I might go into teaching, maybe teaching woodshop at a high school level. Um, got into student teaching and just did not like it. So um, ended up uh, graduating with a wood tech degree, but then a second major in philosophy. Um, so it's one of those, okay, I know a lot about woodworking and science and all that kind of stuff. And um 
I have the philosophy, so I question everything. <laughs> now, what do I do with this? <laughs> you do everything very thoughtfully. Yeah, I try. <laughs> yeah it's not, not, not right. With uh, with an intro interest in physics, and you said astrophysics. Yeah. Um, have you been following the uh, the recent developments with the uh, Insight the Mars, Mars landing? landing? Yeah, not not as closely as I want to, but yeah, I've been catching little news nuggets here and there. Just blows it's my amazing. mind. Just blows my mind. And uh, both uh, Moody and I both graduated from Western. I didn't know they had a wood tech department. I, w- I, did you, John? I had no clue. I'm not even sure what wood tech is. That's that they, sounds like shop. Yeah, it, they, yeah that's which I'm okay Yeah, it's woodworking, um, like cabinet making, furniture making. But the technology part of it is they also throw some engineering stuff in there. So. Uh, Kind of like statics ah. and strengths and how wood bends and you know behaves in different directions and strengths and testing and all that kind of stuff. So they don't have it anymore, oh. unfortunately. Um, but back, I was gonna say I don't even know where it would be. It where on campus was the uh, hell? Corman I mean... Hall, under the we're in the the basement oh. of the engineering wing. <laughs> they didn't let us out okay. much. No, I I don't I know I've been in Corman before, but I'll never think I've been below like the main floor or anything. Yeah, that, that's kind of cool. It was a fun program. It's kind of cool. So um, I'm yeah. going to go right into some of my questions. Um, first and foremost, Habitat for Humanity. I think <laughs> I know what it is, and I'm going to describe what I think it is, and then I want you and Lance, who has participated. Uh, to to kind of correct me I'm on this. I'm not going to correct it. Um, it's, uh, that's Tom's so easy, easy words for him. So. Yeah, but you could sit there and, and okay, either yeah, loudly or okay, silently I'm, judge I'm me. That's, that's 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 how this works. I mean, how is that different from any other episode? Well, that's just it. That's just it. So so it's my understanding that Habitat for Humanity is a organization that um, identifies people in need of housing and helps facilitate the uh, the ability or the the means by which someone can uh, gain so 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 gain a house but it's through labor of love like actual physical labor by the soon-to-be homeowners as well as uh, groups of volunteers and individuals who are uh, both skilled and unskilled laborers to to build the home I mean, is that kind of where we're going, but is there, there's lots more to it. Yeah. I really couldn't have said it much better myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Basically um, we, we build and repair homes. We actually started repairing homes as well about five years ago. Really? Um, Yeah. The critical repair program has been, um, it's been huge. There's a huge need. There's a lot of people living in like really substandard conditions. Hmm. Um, So we've been able to do a lot of good there, but the traditional program, like new houses and rehabs, Yeah, people come to us in need. Um, They have to show that they're living in substandard housing right now. Um, And that could be either just a really crummy environment or it could also be something that's that's just way too expensive. They're spending 50 or 60 or 70 percent of their uh, income on rent. Um, And that's we see that a lot. And then they have to fall in a certain income guideline because the biggest myth that we have that we're always fighting up against is that we give our houses away. And we actually sell them um, for what they appraise at and at 0% interest. So that's 
by using volunteers and everything, we're able to keep our costs down. And by using the 0% interest, that also keeps the cost down. So their mortgages end up with taxes and insurance and escrow and everything, their mortgages end up like between four and 600 bucks a month, which is usually a lot less than they're paying for rent. Right. Wow. And it's a much, wow. much higher quality house. You know, we're doing like super energy efficient stuff and everything. So really low heating bills, really comfortable. Um, so yeah, it's an awesome program. And then the, it's the thing I like about it is it's, you know, it's, it's not a giveaway program, you know, it sounds kind of cheesy. They call it like a hand up, not a handout. So people really have to, they, they got to really, really put some time in. Um, it's usually between three and 500 hours of sweat equity. We call it. That's where they get out there and they work on their house. They work on other people's houses. They take like, um, financial courses and home maintenance courses. So they're really like set up for success. And, um, then when they move in, start paying their mortgage, we're the bank, and so we take the mortgage payments and all of that money that comes in goes right back into our construction budget to build more homes. So it's this really cool circular cycle. <clears throat> wow. Okay. This is way more than I ever thought. I, I had no concept of this. So this is pretty cool. So when someone's going to have to put in these many hundreds of hours of sweat equity, not only in their home, but yep. in others, um, how much of a say do they have in the home that they're building? Is it uh, like, here's a choice of 10 plans or who secures the land so that they can decide what kind of house to build? I mean, what, what, I mean, I'd love to, I, I don't want to make this completely about you. Give me the whole step-by-step, step, but I kind of want the step-by-step step here, Tom. What, what, so someone qualifies yes. and then you're like, we've got 10 plots of land. Which one do you want? Or is it, how yep, does that what, work? What ends up happening is, um, yep. Somebody gets approved. Um, they go through the application process and our board of directors approves them and everything. It's a real formal blind process. So there's no chance for, or anything like that. um, yeah. you know, um, you know, nepotism or problems or conflicts or anything like that. So they go through the process and then they start right away working on their sweat equity hours. Once they've earned a certain amount of hours, it could be like 50 or 60 hours. Then we feel, you know, they got a little bit of skin in the game. Now we're ready to go. Um, and yeah, basically we say, okay, here's where we're building. Um, we might have a couple of houses in progress. We might have a couple of empty lots. Um, it kind of depends what's going on at the time. Um, preferably we like to start building the house for that particular family. Um, that's kind of the way we prefer to go. Um, and in that case, which happens quite a bit, um, we'll actually find the property and then we assign the people to that property and then they get to choose from maybe one or two different house plans, um, based on their family size. So um, we have very strict guidelines that come down from Habitat International, from the mothership, you know, um, on like how many bedrooms they can have based on the genders of the kids and mom and dad and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this isn't their first rodeo, right? When they, yeah, they we got to be really careful because, okay. um, you know, we don't want to discriminate against anybody. Um, we got to keep everything equitable. You know, you don't want to move somebody, uh, you know, a mom and a kid into a four bedroom home and then you know, you'll be hearing about it for a while. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Does uh, Habitat, have they embraced the idea of the uh, 
uh, you said you do everything really energy efficient, cutting edge technologies, all these sorts of things. Has Habitat thought about or embraced the idea of the uh, tiny home? Yeah, or the small um, we actually built home. a tiny home uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, it was the first one in the city of Kalamazoo, probably one of the first ones in Southwest Michigan, actually. Really? Um, we had a gentleman come to us, and yeah. he was he fit all the criteria, need for better housing, and everything. And when it came time to picking the lot, he picked the lot. And I said, okay, which house plan do you want? And he said, as small as you can possibly build. And I said, okay, what are you thinking? And he says, I'm thinking about 150 square feet. <laughs> I about fell out of my chair. Um, <laughs> so the design we ended up <laughs> yeah. finally settling on was about 250 square feet thereabouts um, to meet building codes and dimensions and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it was a fun project. Um, I don't know if we'll do it again only not in a bad way um only because he's like the first person that's ever come to us and said i want a really small house um you know if somebody else walked in the door tomorrow and said you know could you build me one absolutely um but my gut says it's gonna be a while (laughs) it's kind of a niche market I keep, yeah, I keep, I, for a while there, I felt like I heard about them for like a year, year and a half, and then I haven't really heard about them as of late that, you know, there's all these interesting home trends, like people living permanently in RV vans, like mm-hmm. where they retrofit the inside of like a sprinter van. Well, if I remember live- too, Jason, I think there was a lot of um, codes and things that um, cities would enact that made it almost impossible to have tiny homes. Because I, I had a friend that actually uh, worked for one of the big premier companies that made them, and she said, you know, she got evicted from her tiny house because of that. In terms of, like, um, electrical co- like codes for building or, yeah. like, zoning for, kind of thing? For residential, they said it had to be at least they, – they set, like, a square footage that was, like, just over what nearly all the tiny homes were. Huh. So none of them would qualify as an actual residence. So that's an interesting question, Tom. Um, the the home you guys built Trailers. must, I'm guessing, yes. had like an actual foundation and everything with it, versus some of these tiny homes that are not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, Lance. Like they have wheels, they are mobile, they can be placed wherever. Um, that's not something exactly. Habitat would do, though, right? Yeah, because we're we're really not in the business of building kind of a mobile house. Um, you know, it's it just brings up all kinds of questions about you know who who owns it is it really attached to the property what's the liability all that kind of stuff so yeah we decided if we were going to do it we're going to build it as a as an actual house Um, the trick is um a lot of cities uh, municipalities have minimum house sizes like uh, like john was saying you know they'll set the house size at maybe five or six or seven hundred i think portage is like 1300 it's crazy the minimum house size um And what they're trying to do is they're trying to, you know, kind of keep the tiny house movement down a little bit. Um, And there's various reasons for that. But um, we found out that Kalamazoo didn't have a minimum house size at all. Um, They actually kind of, they weren't quite sure of it themselves. And they did some research and looked way back in their ordinances. And they're like, you know, we we don't have a minimum house size. Um, So we were able to do um, basically whatever we wanted within the building code. Um, the trick is when you when you attach a house to the ground, when you make it permanent, then you got to follow the building codes. And that gets tricky the smaller you get. 
you know, because you got to have like fire entrance and egress and different dimensions around sinks and toilets and all that kind of stuff. So it gets tricky. Yeah, I would just we just personally had our fireplaces inspected today because we were thinking about doing fire um, over the holiday. And even the guy who was inspecting it said, you know, the little I don't know what is it called, the little tile that's in front of the fireplace. Yep. Um, it's supposed to be so many inches and ours is way short of that, but not, he said, not even a lot of home inspectors know what the code for something like that is. So I'm, I don't even want to get into code discussion cause that would just, my brain would melt. I wouldn't even know what to do with that. Um, you, you mentioned that there's various reasons why a, a, a municipality may want to uh, tone down or squash, so to speak, a, a tiny home movement without being specific to any particular municipality. What's a, a general <laughs> guess that you would have a reason why? Why would a, a community not want a tiny home or a tiny home community? I, I can't I'm, I've been reading a lot about them and I cannot figure out why it would be a negative. Yeah, it's um, some of them are coming from a uh they're coming at it from a, a decent point of view. You know, they're not trying to be difficult about it. They're coming at it more from like a health and safety standpoint. Okay. Um, kind of density, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, if all of a sudden you start throwing five or six tiny homes on a lot, then all of a sudden where are you going to park um, is your, you know, things like water and sewage, you know, are you going to end up with sewage overflows because you have too many people on the lot and all that kind of stuff. So they, they come at it from a, a health and safety standpoint and everything. Um, and that's kind of what I found around here, but I have heard, you know, some municipalities just, it's a, a little bit of, I guess, kind of elitist sort of thing. You know, they, they want okay. larger yeah. homes, um, you know, and, and also too, um, you know, homes are generally taxed based on their, you know, the taxable value is based on the square footage. So, the okay. City ain't too much money yep, out of a tiny house. <laughs> yeah, not much. Uh, and well, I, if I can, if I can interject something too about this tiny house, you know, movement is um, we've I, I'm working with some of the, um, the some of our Siemens Veterans Network uh, people here in our local, and we we opened some talks about um, working with Habitat to actually create a tiny house community for veterans um interesting in, in the area um and um it i think habitat it, it's not habitat way county but uh i think it's habitat orange county down here um it, it is is open to you know discussions like that to of you know purchasing a plot of land and you know actually creating a tiny house community for um you know veterans either homeless uh, i think probably more homeless veterans than anything but um it, it's something that uh, we've we, we've actually looked at talking to the to the uh into the organizations down here about doing something like that so yeah our cool. habitat affiliates yeah. there's a couple here in the state in michigan that are that are thinking about something like that as well um they've yeah. i've seen a couple designs and you know, they can, I've seen a couple of really cool designs where they take like a city block um, or half a city block or something like that. And they take these tiny houses and kind of, kind of circle the wagons, you know, have them all face. So the front door faces yep. in. So you have kind of a mm -hmm. central park play area kind of place. And, you know, that way there's kind of a sense of community. 
Um, yep. you know, aside from just kind of being another house on the block that the cars pass by and, you know, so you've got that little 12 or 15 or 20 homes or whatever it is facing like an inner courtyard. It's a cool idea. And I, I yeah. think probably in the next uh-huh. three to five years, we might see a couple of those pop up. Yeah. So speaking of community, uh, this is where I, where the biggest thing for Habitat comes into play, and this is where I would I want to hear about it from both you and, and Lance, because um, Habitat for Humanity relies a lot on volunteer oh, yes. labor. Um, and we, we, as in we, where I work, um, one of the new interns over the summer organized a really cool opportunity for uh, huge numbers of people from my company to go volunteer and build at habitat and they had a pretty good experience um they had some confusion and concerns but my my question is um habitat always claims that you don't need to have any existing skill set to to uh to help out so can you as the as the director of construction operations if you have a group of volunteers that show up on your lot that have at the very most swung a hammer what kinds of things can a volunteer on a Habitat for Humanity build expect to be doing during their volunteer? Hey, Tom, time? can I answer? Do, do you mind yeah, if I answer? Go you know, start, yeah, because um, I'm answering this, you know, Jason, because I, you know, I've I've been a Habitat volunteer for about 15 to 16 years now, and um, I yeah. lead our uh, volunteer group at my work uh, for Habitat. I was telling Tom earlier the. Habitat for Humanity is international as one of the one of the largest um, organizations that we support from a national and a corporate standpoint. And uh, but what I tell people when I you know and people are asking me, well, I, you know, I don't have any I don't have any experience and I want to you know go out there and look like an idiot. I'm like, it doesn't matter if you've you know if you know how to hold a hammer and you know it doesn't matter which end of the hammer you use to nail a nail. I mean, it, it's a right, but I got to agree yeah, with John. But uh, um, but what I tell them is, I mean, to be, I mean, I don't know of any other organization that um, is so open to the volunteer um, lifestyle and the life, the, the volunteer heart of giving like that is they don't they they want you out there and to be working out there next to next to the person that you're building the house for is is such a tremendous experience and it's a it's an experience that people i i think need to experience more and um i mean that, that's one that's one of the things that i love about it is you know the i mean i i i know how to build things i know how to put things together but working alongside those people that are, you know, are putting that sweat equity into the, their home. I mean, to, to, to be sitting next, standing next to a homeowner that is nailing a nail into a wall that is going to be having a you know, picture on it of their family is a, is, I mean, I'm just getting goosebumps talking about it, but it's, I mean, that is one of the best experiences that I've ever had. And, um, and, and I don't know of any other organization in the world that you know, would have that type of that type of feeling and um, you know, of a community of you know your the I mean the community is is commune I mean and you're communing with these people and and that's what's uh, that's what's so tremendous about it so it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you what experience you have and they're not going to put you on the roof if you've got you know 
if you've got vertigo, I mean, it's they they ask you what you want to do, and you know, in all the in all the times that I've been involved in any type of volunteer um, stuff with Habitat, there, I mean, they ask you what you feel comfortable doing. If you feel comfortable picking up, you know, the trash around the site, you know, they'll give you that. But um, I mean, they're not going to put you someplace that you don't feel comfortable. And the way that they teach you, I mean, the, the way that the, all the people on site teach you, uh, you know, from the, you know, from the volunteers, even, I mean, these volunteers that have I mean, like myself that have experience in this stuff that know how to do some of that things and some of those things that um, the habitat puts out there. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, everybody's teaching each other and it's, that's what's such a great experience about, you know, ha- helping out with habitat. It's just, it's a great thing. So. Well, at, and I appreciate you sharing that, Lance. So the question I'd ask Tom then at its core, we know it's a volunteer organization, you know, is, is it an, is it an appropriate expectation for someone that's going to volunteer on a habitat build to go there? Yes, of course you want to help people and, and have that connection as Lance was describing, because it's very, it's a very personal thing to him. He really enjoys that process. Is it a, is it an appropriate expectation for someone to show up on a site expecting to learn and taking it as a learning opportunity? I mean, they're not going to get like a journeyman card or anything like that. But I, I wonder about that. Like, I want to yeah. use, I want to learn how to use a pneumatic nail gun this week. Maybe this is what I'll do. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. We get people, um, you know, uh, you know, obviously we love if people come out and really get motivated and kind of get that sense of community and everything else. But, um, you know, frankly, if they're there for other reasons, that's, that's great. You know, we, we have some people we've got a couple of people right now that come out on a regular basis and they basically said, you know, I want to build my own house someday. And I figured okay. this is really good training. You know, it's free training. I can come out, I can do a little bit of good. Um, and I just, I want to learn how to use tools. I want to learn how to build a house. And that's, that's awesome. That is pretty awesome. Jason doesn't know how to use any tools, so maybe he should do this. That Well, that segues to my next set of questions. Thanks. John, you jerk, but well, he speaks the truth here, Tom. Um, the the joke amongst our friends is uh, one of our our lifelong friends, uh, Matt Conrad, always was the owner of many a tool. Still is. <laughs> and for those of us, me, who yeah, 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 yeah lots. Um, so yeah, we always went to him for guy. I did. I went. He always had the right tool for the job. He didn't have to go buy anything. He knew what what needed to be done. So let's let's take uh, a stab at your building expertise and, and turn it inward on our own sure. homes. Um, the first question I want to ask is this: If you were advising someone who is a new homeowner. Let's say it's not a brand new home. It's an established home, been around for a while. What would you suggest are the, uh, I, I wouldn't want to put a number on it, but the, the tools that you should have in every home to be able to tackle basic home maintenance and repair without having to, one, call a professional, or two, uh, not necessarily run to a hardware store for a tool. Where do you go with basic tools that everyone should not only have around the house, but be able to actually use um yeah you you really don't need anything complicated you know you watch a lot of um building shows and this old house and everything and um they've got fantastic power tools and all that but really 
just to maintain a home, you really don't need a whole lot. Um, you're going to want, you know, just the basic hand tools, you know, uh, hammer, pliers, uh, various types of pliers, screwdrivers, um, you know, probably socket sets, stuff like that. Um, I would say owning a house, probably the most common repairs you're going to be making are like plumbing, um, electrical, maybe like drywall repair, stuff like that. So any tools that are conducive to those types of work are, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's kind of, uh, it, it's a little hard to say, you know, what exactly you'd need, um, until you kind of get into it. But I would say basically just, you know, your average, if you could envision a toolbox with, you know, hammer, small level, um, various types of pliers, screwdrivers, um, you know, socket set, tape measure, stuff like that. You're, you're got a pretty good start. Mm. And then you'll probably do what we all do is you'll get into a job and then you'll say, Oh, here's an excuse for a new tool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was me with a, uh, angled pipe wrench for like reaching up to sink fixtures. Yep, exactly. It's like, I bought it. I used it. I don't know where that tool is, but I know I own it. Yep. Um, well, he, John, most tools wins. Right. Yeah. Someday that's going to be me. I know with my, my, my dad's tools. Um, <laughs> Moody, what, it, do you remember the first tool you got for your home, your first home that you owned? Uh, you know, I mean, probably it was, you know, some of the stuff like Tom said, I think a lot of it was just expanding what I had because I had a very small socket set. And I think I just went out and bought like one of the bigger ones that covered a lot more of it. And, you know, I used that. And I mean, especially around the apartment, I used, you know, a set of robo grips almost daily. Mm-hmm. for things that uh, hammer is easy. Um, I use a level a lot just because, I mean, it's a lot more hanging stuff, but it's real easy just even with a small level, just like when I was hanging some of the bigger um, uh, shelves that came that I bought like last month that it's like, okay, I don't have a ruler as big as this shelf. I could use the shelf for the, for the actual level, or I could use the box that the thing came in, pop a couple holes, where those um where I need to put the screws and use the level to level that. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean I've got some tools. I think the biggest thing for me is it's not necessarily having the tools or knowing how to use the no, tools. It's not it's how the to use them, Jay. Yeah, you hold the hammer, no, you hold the hammer by the metal part. Sure <laughs> right. My you guys are such jackasses. Uh, mine is the uh, the fear of making whatever I'm trying to repair worse, well, so that I you do just learn how to fix repairing. it. Then that's the fun part. Well, that was true. So my first house, the one on the north side of Lansing, uh, significant plumbing issues. Uh, there's two things that fear. I'm very fearful in my house. One is water, mm-hmm. um, and the other is electricity. Uh, the electricity comes from especially together. That's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, you never want to marry the two. I mean, even even the house, the first house I owned here in Kalamazoo, um, I was wiring up three three-way switches together, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I did it wrong, but I was right by the circuit breaker. So I would turn it off, make an adjustment, turn it on, test it, turn it off, make an adjustment, turn it on, test it. And I got out of rhythm. Oh, whoops. And I touched those live wires. And did, did it hurt? A little bit. 
but it didn't hurt as bad as the one I owned in the North Lansing where I literally was felt like I was shot across the room. Um, yeah. Uh, but mine is, so there's other things I've done to the house though, that I, I complete them and I feel like super confident. Maybe it's not so much as hanging pictures or anything like that, but, uh, Tom gave me, uh, my family some advice for, um, kind of, um, energy proofing the house a little bit where we would, uh, he had me get some of the, uh, I forgot the thickness. It's that foam board, um, that I measured and cut and put up in the, and I'm going to slot the joists. Oh yeah. Yep. Up in the rim joist. Up in the rim joist. Right. And I, and I, you know, measured them out and there's a bear to cut with a handsaw, even the, even the, Oh my God. Um, but then used tons and tons of cans of the good stuff foam sealant. And all of a sudden, uh, a good Saturday afternoon has made a significant difference walking into our basement. I don't, I think I noticed it a little bit in the bill, but I noticed it when you walk downstairs and it actually feels, and we're talking in the, the cement exposed floor basement, right. it feels comfortable. And, and it was something that was not hard to do physically. It took some work, but it wasn't hard to actually enact. So yeah. Um, yeah. energy um, saving stuff is actually um, it's some of the easiest stuff to do as far as skill level goes. And the, the benefit is huge. And a lot of times, you know, you don't need, you don't need to use anything fancy. Um, you know, just caulk is, you know, it's a relatively cheap product. Um, get a caulk gun and go down in your basement and wherever you see a crack going outside, um, kind of one of our tricks is go in the basement on a really, really sunny day, shut all the lights off and block off the windows. And if you see light coming in the crack, seal it up. And it's amazing. You lose, I think mm. it's like something between 40 and 50% of your heat gets lost through um, air, air movement out of the house in the wintertime. So just doing caulking, sealing, wow. uh, just really basic stuff. You can really, you, it, and you'll, you'll save something on the heating bill. But like Jason said, you know, it makes the house more comfortable too. It eliminates those drafts. Um, it, it's, you know, you're not pulling air from places you don't want to pull it. Um, in really severe uh, conditions, what can happen is, you know, if you've got really, really bad leaks in the house, um, you fire up your water heater and sometimes it'll actually backdraft down into the home um, because of the, the heat oh, rising wow. up. But there's some physics behind it and everything. But, um, yeah, it, it's just you can really you can really, you know, like in a Saturday afternoon or maybe a, a weekend or something, you can make a huge difference. Well, I even noticed that with, um, I mean, we've done some stuff, the house insulation, new windows, stuff like that, where you could actually walk into rooms that we haven't had an opportunity to, to, to tackle yet. And you can feel the difference. Even when Lance, I think you helped, uh, when we, at my old house, we did the plastic sheathing over the windows in the winter where you kind of hair dryer it on with the, uh, you know, just to seal up those windows, even that little bit and temporary, obviously, but, um, that sort of project is, is, is kind of cool as well. Um, what would you, what is a, this is probably gonna be a real hard question to answer, but I'm going to try it anyway. Um, what would you say is a good entry point home owner project to do that could be something, uh, most people should be able to tackle that is, 
um, easy to do, fun to do that enhances a home, whether, I mean, outside of the energy efficiency type things, is there something that people could be doing to their homes, um, that not only builds their skill set but, uh, it's kind of fun to do and, and adds to their overall home ownership experience. Like, is, is it, is it building a deck? Is it, uh, sealing the garage floor? What kinds of things? Can I interject? Yeah. No. No, Lance, you're not part of the show at all. You, you're never allowed to. In fact, if you asked to interject, yeah. the answer will always be no. Just interject. It's like, you're always prepared. Just, just go. A little uh, hand raising thing. Yeah, there, there we go. There you go. And and I, and I, the floor recognizes the guy from the southern northern yeah. state. No, um, I, I, something that I would always tell people, um, is, uh, replace a light fixture or replace a, um, you know, ceiling fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, really that's something those, those, I mean, I mean, it's electricity, but, um, I, I, I think a, uh, you know, common sense, you know, human being, I think can, um, you know, careful, I know, but, uh, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, but I, I would say like replacing a light fixture or a ceiling fan, I think is something that is super simple. Uh, or it, that's not necessarily super simple, but it's something that is, you know, as a new homeowner, um, it was something that can, um, you know, can easily be, uh, be done. And, and Tom, tell me if I'm wrong, is uh, they teach, um, you know, new homeowners stuff like that, don't they? Oh, you know, yeah. how to yeah. replace yeah. Uh, fixtures or even yes, if it's absolutely. just a, yeah, they take yeah. Uh, home maintenance courses. So, okay. uh, we've got, they're like two or three hour classes and there's a set of about 12 to 15 classes, I think. And they're, you know, basic plumbing, basic electrical, uh, drywall repair, uh, spring and fall maintenance, lawn care, home security, you know, all different classes and they, they're hands-on classes. And yeah, uh, like Lance was saying, you know, replacing a light fixture, replacing a ceiling fan, um, painting is a, is a huge, um, you know, you can really make a huge impact just painting a room, um, or painting trim, replacing like, Mm -hmm. uh, switches and outlets, and covers, you know, stuff like that, that can really kind of spruce mm-hmm. up a place. Um, it, like you said, um, you know, building a deck or a shed, maybe like a storage shed. That's always kind of fun. Um, you know, you get to do a little bit of framing, a little bit of siding, stuff like that, or you can get a pre-made kit and those are fun to assemble. Um, yeah, there's a whole, there's a wide variety of stuff. One thing, if you are going to be doing electrical work, one of my handiest tools is a voltage detector. Um it's a little yep. handheld device mm-hmm. and you hold down a button and you wave it around the device you're working on and it tells you if it's live or not. It's uh, it's saved me a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is actually something I own. Yep. Uh, my latest project has been redoing mm-hmm. the internal workings of our toilets, the, the whole float system. Oh, I hate that. And I still hate it. Why do you need it. that voltage it, tester for that? You works, couldn't, uh, but I just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes you need a voltage tester in the can. It just, sometimes it's a thing. Okay. I don't want to have to get into the details. Maybe but, uh, wiring up one of those yeah, fancy yeah, bidets, uh, Lance, that announces, hello, Mr. Vallad. Oh, that place yeah, works for you and everything. RGB, yeah. Yeah. Do those go? Do those go in any habitat homes, Tom? Any bidets getting installed? Uh, not recently, <laughs> no. 
<laughs> I did actually in a in a former life. I did uh, kitchen and bathroom remodeling, and I installed a Japanese toilet one time, and it had to have a twenty amp circuit installed right behind it because it had a seat that did everything. It was amazing, and it, it was wow, the toilet was awesome. like a thousand dollars, and the seat was like fifteen hundred or something. It was wow. just insane. And then all the costs to run like a whole 20 amp dedicated line and all that. It was just, it was nuts. They had a heated seat and spray nozzle and stereo. And it was just crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I would have only bought it if it had an eight track player though. I feel like that would have been. Toilet play heavy metal. (laughs) There you go. We're going to be busy. Let's let's get this going. No, if it's busy, Um, you'd be like. Put on uh, audiobook The Bible, narrated by Morgan Freeman. <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, so I, I want to talk about something um, that's really, really interested me lately. And I don't know if you can speak to this, Tom. If you can't, we'll move forward. But uh, home automation type things. Um, everything, uh, everything that you would put under the umbrella of a smart home. Um do you ever play with any of that stuff? Do you have any in your own home? I don't know if it's a habitat thing to, yeah, to include. We have uh, everything voice controlled or yeah, we haven't really like done that. much of habitat because of the cost. Um, we're trying to keep things kind of affordable. Uh-huh. Um, in my own home, I got a smart thermostat. Um, I mean, it's not that smart, uh-huh. but it's Wi-Fi and I can control it remotely and all that kind of stuff. And um, I haven't gotten too much into that, but I know it's a huge segment of the building industry right now. It's probably the fastest growing area. Um, and I get involved in a lot of, cause the houses we build are, um, zero energy ready. So they, I've done a lot of research on, um, indoor air quality and energy savings and all that kind of stuff. And they're, they're looking at like indoor air pollution and stuff like that. And possibly in new homes, putting in sensors that would like sense the carbon dioxide level and trigger the ventilation in the home, stuff like just crazy stuff like that. You know, never even think of but really improves quality of life That's cool. and uh, like range hoods that automatically sense heat and moisture, um, things like that, you know, or things that can be controlled remotely, all of that. It's, it's really, it's pretty neat. I also have a Wi-Fi enabled thermostat. It is probably one of the things I play with the most that in my, uh, Wi-Fi enabled garage door opener. Right. <laughs> I don't know I, I, why I feel so, I, it feels good one to be able to feel like I'm controlling the temperature and saving some bucks, but the garage door one where I get a notification when it opens and closes. So like if I'm traveling, I can know when my oldest is home from school yeah. because that's how he comes in the house. Right. So it's a sense of a sense of, whew. um, do you, um, when, when, when I started looking at buying my first home, which would have been in the late nineties. Yeah. Now I'm doing math. Math is hard. Um, the, the trend for building. I need a calculator. I need a calculator. Um, the trend at the time was to build homes with all this integrated wiring. You know, uh, every room was going to be wired for for high speed internet. There was coax cable everywhere. Uh, is that still a trend that people are following, or is it because so many things are Wi Fi enabled? Do you need to do that to a home? for any particular reason outside of, you know, someone who's running a dedicated yeah, server um, or something in there. We home. actually, we run like a, a coax cable line and an ethernet line um, to every bedroom and uh, in the living room as well. But 
we're really finding that you really don't need it. Um, the COMEX is probably going to disappear here shortly. Right. Uh, and, right. The, you know, with everything going to Wi-Fi, you're right. Um, unless you have a really, really big house <clears throat> where, you know, your Wi-Fi is not going to travel if you got a 10,000 square foot house or something. You know, you may have to have a little bit of wiring here and there. But, um, yeah, you're right. As far as the integrated cable and telephone wire and all that kind of stuff, it's really... I've talked to other builders and it's kind of being phased out. Yeah. We, I mean, even, I mean, I cut cable a while ago. We have a streaming TV service. Uh, the only thing I could, that I wish I had ethernet running from my office here to a couple rooms uh, was to hardwire the, um, the router piece. The, I have a Google Wi-Fi system, which works really well in, in our home. Uh, but it'd be nice to have them, some of them at the farthest reaches, hardwired to to boost signal, so to speak. But I I can't think of another reason why it would be necessary. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I was always just curious about that. Um, have you you so you have you built a home from scratch uh, yourself, like anything you've owned or for family or friends, or has it always been? Uh, for a project or with a team? Um, generally, yeah, generally is, uh, I've never actually built my own. I'd love to be able to build my own home, but, um, you know, raising kids and everything, it's not really affordable. <laughs> I can't yep. afford two mortgages yep. at the same time. Um, but um, I, I've done pretty much every part of building a home. Um, I've been on a framing crew, roofing, siding, um, I've worked alongside plumbers, electricians. Um, even today, I was helping our heating guy install a furnace. So I've probably, over the years, built 50 homes or so <laughs> in in small parts. Yeah. Pieces, <laughs> right, yeah. gotcha. But yeah, I've never really had the opportunity to like build um, for, you know, a family or myself or anything like that. So, Tom, what, uh, what would be your... <laughs> You know, with with you just saying that you've been on so many different teams and you know different parts of the house, what is your kind of like your favorite uh, kind of duty on a um, on a on a house when you're working on a house? Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm kind of a woodworker by training, so I love doing framing. Um, I love doing cabinet and trim work. That's okay. kind of cabinets and trim are probably my my favorite. Okay. Um, I've also been getting in a little bit into the, um, heating and ventilation side of it. Okay. Um, it's, it kind of piques some of my science inter interest and, um, the field is evolving really, really fast. It may not seem like it, but, um, the, the higher efficiency furnaces and new duct work and all that kind of stuff is, is really kind of cool. Nice. So skilled trades, this is a, this is a topic we talked about, I don't know, 30 yeah. episodes ago. It just came, just popped in my brain. Um, people go to college for various reasons. I mean, even you have a, a woodworking technology, wood technology uh, degree from an accredited university. Um, yet you're probably working with a lot of men and women who are skilled trades, yeah. right? Anything from carpenters to electricians to plumbers. Um, are you still sensing the need for people uh, that have that skill set, and if you are, where are people best suited? Where where should they go to learn these kinds of things? Um, in a former life, Lance and I worked for an uh, electrical distribution company, so electrical supply distribution. So we would deal with a lot of uh, electricians and electrical companies, and you always learned about these guys basically 
learning on the job and tagging along and taking tests and stuff like that. But I have no idea if I wanted to be a master carpenter, I want to be the next Norm Abrams or something like that. There you go. Norm Abrams. Yeah. <sighs> what a great show. Where, 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 where would someone even begin in 2018 to do something like that? Yeah, it's really, well, right now the need for skilled trades is like at a critical level. Um, young folks aren't going into skilled trades um, for various reasons. Um, a lot of them think it's not very high pain. Um, a lot of them think it's, you know, grungy, nasty, outdoor, cold work and everything. Um, and so they, they kind of shy away from it. And we've got like thousands of people retiring every day and the spots aren't being filled. So it's causing major, major labor issues in the market. Um, so yeah, the best way, um, I mean, they have building trades programs at high schools that you can get involved in. Um, once you graduate, like, uh, uh, community colleges, a lot of them have like KVCC has a great, uh, HVAC program, uh, mechanical program. Mm -hmm. They got their wind program. Um, they've got a basic carpentry program and a lot of the union shops around too. They've got amazing training programs. Um, they hmm. take a kid fresh out of high school, 18 years old. And within two years, you know, they're actually building a huge carpentry school up, um, off of 131 up by Wayland right now a brand new facility and these kids go in and within two years they're they go through their apprenticeship and then they become a journeyman and these kids are getting out and they're like 20 21 years old and they're making like between 15 and 20 bucks an hour and then once they get their master's license they're you know the sky's the limit so so those are the kinds of kids that end up having I'm sorry to cut you off, Tom, but that that's my thought is these are the kids who 10 years into their career are the ones who not only are so in demand that they they can turn down work for other work, but they have a house up north that's got a boat because they've had just tremendous success. I know I know I saw that with electricians. Mm -hmm. They just holy yeah, they, crap. they can make really good money. Um the other question I was gonna ask along these lines is not only are people able to get experience doing volunteer work with like Habitat, but uh, both John and Lance uh, throughout their entire careers have been that's, heavily involved that's where I was in tonight, actually. <laughs> theater work. Um, Moody, Moody's a professional musician. Right. Yeah. And I mean, so Moody right. plays in the pit and does countless hours of performance art that way. And Lance is very much into the set building design, striking sorts of things of those nature. Do you see, um, any of the people that you work with do those sorts of things where they will go to local theaters, say a, a Miller auditorium or any of the local high schools that put on these tremendous productions uh, to help build sets and, and learn that way as well. Yeah. Um, they actually have at the high schools, I was actually involved in uh, my daughter's musical, a couple of them the last two years in uh, middle school and I was helping build sets and everything. And you're working right alongside with, um, uh, high school kids who are actually training for that. You know, they actually have kids that are there helping to build the sets and helping to set up lights and sound systems and everything else. So a lot of the theater and drama programs have um, uh, stagehand training, that type of training. Um, oh, I don't yeah. really know about formal training out there for it. I'm sure there are schools that teach that. Um, but I know a lot of the bigger, you know, the universities, they put on big performances and everything. So there's got to be some training there 
Well, that's one thing that I, because I wish I I would have had in high school. Because I mean, we didn't have any type of drama program, um, you know, specific to classes or and whatnot. But um, you know, we had, you know, especially when it came to the technical theater part of it. But like Jason said, I've been I've been involved in set building since you know middle school age, and that's actually what I was doing tonight was putting together a set for a show that opens up next week. But um, the uh, but yeah, it's. It's it's a different type of building. Like I was telling somebody tonight, you know, when I was putting some walls up on the stage, and I was just like, you know, they're like, oh, not, not now. I want to be able to build my house, and I'm like, don't. This is not how you build a house. <laughs> this is a. I mean, it, it, it's it's nice that you can understand, you know, that you put things together like this, but this is not how you build a house. So it's you yeah. know, it's a totally different building, but it's um, it, it's still good to get you know because it that to me is my creative outlet and you know that i like you know john i mean he makes you know music and um you know jason makes videos and stuff and my creative outlet is is you know creating you know the set pieces and stuff and um and helping out with that uh, that part uh, in the theater so but love it still yeah, love it I so yeah, when I got a chance to volunteer and help build sets for um, my daughter's musicals, it was like a whole new world. I had never done it before. And uh, just as a parent volunteer, it's it's really cool. Um, the the creativity and just just all the techniques and everything are really, it, it's really amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you ever, Tom, had the opportunity to work on a, a historical building that has been you know, being refurbished or being, you know, redesigned or the structure changed to, to, to save it? So uh, yeah. Have you really? Yeah. Cool. I've worked, um, not through Habitat, but, um, kind of, you know, in a previous career doing, um, you know, carpentry and, you know, matching exterior trim and, um, some of that. And that's, it's, that's really fun too. Um, I used to work at a mill workshop back in Detroit, um, in high school and college. And we, we would work yep. on a lot of, um, they call them Edison homes over there, over in West Dearborn and kind of sort of designed in cooperation with Thomas Edison. And they had these wood brackets and fancy trim on the outside. And we had to take that to the shop and duplicate it and everything. And it's, it's a challenge, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I think that'd be really interesting. I know our, our buddy uh, Conrad had worked on some, historically significant homes and, and government buildings down South. Um, yeah. He did the Capitol in uh, Virginia, didn't he? Yeah, I believe so. And uh, something in DC I too. So. I think so. That was the Pentagon. Well, he did something else. He was in DC for a while. I don't think it was just the Pentagon. I don't think, but yeah, still pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I think that's all pretty cool. So, well, we're actually getting to time. So, uh, Tom, I, I want to say thank you so much for being a part of our 40-ish podcast. Uh, I've learned a ton, and I got a ton of follow-up questions. I'm sure I'll hit you up later. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Hopefully I didn't uh, give you any bad information and get you injured. <laughs> well, as Moody would probably say, it's totally on me if that Well, happens. he's too chicken to try any of that stuff anyway, so he won't get hurt. <laughs> Kinda. I'm kinda chicken. I'll probably end up calling Tom and going, I'm about to do something really, really stupid. And I'm assuming Tom would go, Yeah, give it a try. You won't know until you do it. Do it. Do it. I'm not gonna do that again. Do it. Right. Or do it differently. I'll call up Moody and say, Moody, how do you do this? I don't know, just do it. Oh jeez. Well my thanks to Tom. 
Uh, my thanks to John and Lance. Gentlemen, appreciate your time and your uh, riveting conversation, as always. And uh, if I don't talk to you before, yep. I'll uh, catch you in the next one. Thanks, guys. Yep. See ya. Thank you.